0: Welcome to our verse-by-verse journey through Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. The Gospel of Matthew serves as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this Gospel, Matthew seeks to prove to the Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah for those of us who aren't Jews, Matthew helps us to see our Savior King more clearly and through his gospel learn to live well in his, in Christ's kingdom today. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the Gospel of Matthew, and let's learn about our Savior King and his kingdom. Turn your Bibles to Matthew 9, as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, you know, one of the things that makes the Christian church what it is, um, is, is its inherent unity. The reality is that when God created this thing, when Jesus established the church, it was a church, one church. You know, we have, you know, then developed into different denominations and different branches. But churches in general are meant to be unity and uni- unified in the fact that we are all one. Now, we, if we were to t- sit and talk, and we should do this, and we talk about our, different, our differences, we're a very diverse group. Every, most churches are. They're very diverse. Differences in backgrounds and experiences and education, race, nationality, spiritual maturity, age. We can go right down the list. We're all different. And yet when we come together, there is a oneness that we experience that is is—it's not natural to us. It comes from the Holy Spirit residing in us, and he brings unity. And, you know, people talk about building unity in the church. Um, That's not the right way to say it. The church is in unity, and humans just mess it up. And so we just got to get out of the way and let, let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does and be in the unity that he created the church to be in. It's only when we interfere with the unity that He creates, that we have a problem. I I would say to you, you owe it to yourself to get to know the people of this church. I I if you spend any time, you'll find that some well, there there's some weird ones. I'll i admit, <laughs> we let some weird ones in. Yeah yeah, he raised his hand. Thank you. Um, so we another you got somebody pointing at somebody. That one right there. Okay okay. But many of them are very interesting and they have interesting stories of faith. And, and that's one of the reasons why we do the Social Sundays is because we, we have this habit, we get together and, 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 and some of you do this, you get, to, you get here a little bit early and you hang out and we talk and we interact with one another but very often you come, you go and we don't really have that much interaction with each other and so we do the Social Sundays about once a month so that we will take some time And just spend time together as the body to enjoy the unity that God put into the church. So we got one coming up. I encourage you. um, Just come and hang out. If you don't bring food, fine. There's always more food than we can eat. So just come. And the reality is it's the power of the gospel message that brings that unity. It's only the gospel that can produce that kind of unity within so much diversity. The question that we're going to wrestle with today, is there someone who would not be welcome in your church? Let's pray and we'll ask the Holy Spirit to help us check our hearts this morning. Heavenly Father, we come and we thank you, Lord God, as we as we get into this, we talk about the church, we, we confess first and foremost that the church is not ours, that, while it, you know, even though I, I am the founding pastor of this church, this church is not mine, and never has been, never will be, um, it is not ours, it is yours. And we are here in these times. We come to serve you. We come to worship you. come to learn about you. We come to share you. We come to do all these things. But in the end, it's all about you. Even when we talk about um, getting together and knowing each other better, it's so that we can know what you are doing in the lives of others so that we might be edified, that we might be encouraged, that we might be exhorted in some way. So we thank you, Lord God, and we know, Lord God, that, that, that the reality is, is that we sometimes we get into our patterns and our habits and our rhythms within church, and Lord, in this message today, you're going you're, you're gonna to strive to shake that up a little bit, and so I pray that our hearts would be open to hear what you would say to your church, and Lord, as we're here this morning and we come with all of our stuff... Lord God, all of our issues all of our concerns, all of our questions um, even even just this morning having a conversation with a man who's at the at a crossroads in his life at a at a, deci- a big decision point. Lord, we have those in our lives. We have, we have mistakes we're dealing with. We're having um, successes and failures and sicknesses and deaths and all the stuff that is normal to mankind. We, all, we come with all of those things today. and But I pray right for this moment, for the next 45 minutes or so, that we would set all those things aside and sit quietly at your feet and hear what your spirit would say to your people through your word. We love you, we praise you, and we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. In the last message, we saw Jesus as our Savior King, that he has the power to forgive sins. That that he is in many ways confessing his, his deity in the fact that, that he can forgive sins, the only person that can forgive sins is God because all sins are against God and, and only God can forgive them. Jesus said, I have the authority to forgive sins which then he is in essence claiming his place as God the son, which he is. Forgiveness of sins is important in the life of a believer. Can we, can we say amen to that? But it's only the beginning of the story and, and, we've, and we've got, and too often, and, and not in this church, of course, because you're all amazing, but, you know, we, we sometimes see that as the end of, of you know, what, what is expected or required of Christianity is just, the, you know, for the forgiveness of sins, but there's more to it than that. And we're going to get into some of that today. So we're going to pick it up here in verse 9 of chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now, Matthew is the human writer of the Gospel of Matthew. You know, it took nine chapters for us to be introduced to Matthew, but here he is. He also goes by the name Levi, and so we see him named Levi elsewhere. But he's sitting there in his tax collection booth. Tax collectors, um, also referred to as publicans in other places, um, they were focused on very often, and, and, and we can imagine Matthew was no different than the rest of the tax collectors in his culture, was focused on money and gain and all the things that money could provide to him. Culturally, tax collectors were some of the most hated people in the community, and for lots of different reasons. But they were typically, often, terribly corrupt. They were regularly extorting people for more tax money than was owed, and because the way that the deal worked, anything beyond what the Roman government demanded was profit for them. And so if they could get more from you, they would profit from it. And so they were considered at the same level as thieves and murderers by many in the culture, especially within the religious establishment. So tax collectors were, were not, not very popular, except we're going to see a little bit later with other tax collectors and other people of ill repute. The thing that we want to not miss here is of all the people that Jesus saved if he could save Matthew he can save just about anybody well we know that he can actually save anybody but to save somebody who came out of this this culture and environment where corruption and and wickedness was an accepted practice to draw him out of that is amazing you know Matthew is an example also of how Jesus can reach those who are who, who seem to be most um, consumed with the material things in world in the world, and we know that we we look around. We you know if you if spend any time on social media, you'll see how many people are consumed with material things, whatever they might be. Not only is Jesus our Savior King. Not only does he do miracles, but he does the impossible, and that is to change a human heart. Of all the things that Jesus does, changing the human heart and saving sinners has got to be the greatest of them all. If he can change the heart of someone like Matthew, there's no one he can't reach And that should remind us that when we're thinking about other people, those that we're familiar with, those that we're working with, those that we're neighbors to, those that we're this or that or whatever, married to or whatever it might be, that that he can change any of them. Just as Jesus called Matthew, he can call anyone into his kingdom. Psalm 29.4. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. When God calls, when Jesus calls, you answer. And we gotta understand that when Matthew responded, he had to give up a lot. He was probably influential in his community. He was probably wealthy. Somehow Matthew knew that the spiritual benefit of following Jesus outweighed the material loss that he would experience. He somehow knew that. We don't know how because he doesn't explain a lot to us about Matthew's conversion, just that it happened. In Matthew 16, verses 24 through 26, says, Then Jesus said to his disciple, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That's exactly what Matthew does. When he stands up from that tax collection booth and walks away from it and follows Jesus, he has denied himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Somehow, Matthew... We don't know how much he understood. We don't even know how much he knew about Jesus or the things of God, but he understood something at some level, and we, and we all do this. We all have gone through this where we recognize it would be better for me to follow Jesus than to not follow Jesus. We may not be able to explain it. We may not understand it, but we something, we intuit it that we know, okay, there's something, it'd be better to do that than this. Now, the question we come is, why, why did Jesus pick Matthew? Or another question, why did Matthew respond the way that he did? We're not told why. If you ever in any of my Bible studies, if the Bible doesn't explain something, don't try to explain it for God. Too often we say, well, here's why it happened. Okay, God didn't explain it to us. Why are we trying to explain it to us? It happened. What it is, is an example of the sovereign grace and mercy of God. That's what it is. God chose Matthew. Why? Because he wanted to. Why did he choose you? Are you special somehow? Are you, you know, are, are you somebody that God should have chosen? You, can you, can you say, you know what, I, well, God chose me because, I mean, you are know, like, you know, look at me. <laughs> I'm am amazing. <laughs> Interestingly, he doesn't choose a lot of truly amazing people. And sometimes when he chooses amazing people, they turn out not to be so amazing. When you get, start getting, you know, digging in under the, the facade, it's God's sovereign grace. And he doesn't have to explain why he does what he does. He just does it. It's how all of us were chosen. He didn't choose us because we were special. He didn't choose us because we were good. He didn't choose us because of what what we would end up doing for him. He just chose us. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 says this For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God did it. God shone his light into us. And when he did that, there was a response from us. The call of Christ is both mysterious and miraculous. We must never forget that. When, when Christ calls someone out of the darkness and into the kingdom of his life, it is both mysterious and miraculous. It's mysterious because we don't understand why or even how it happened. It just did happen. Can I explain how I got saved? I can explain the process but I have no idea how I crossed that line. I don't know how I went from there to there. I know what was going on around that period of my life, but I can't tell you what actually took place. What the, what the, the mechanical, the, the practical, whatever term you might want to use there, I can't explain what changed that got me over the line. It just happened. It's miraculous. It wasn't something I did. It wasn't something you did. You didn't choose to be saved. You might think, well, I made a choice. Mm, yeah, you're going to make it the same choice that Matthew made. But he didn't actually choose to be saved. No one chooses to be saved. You can't do it. You can't wake up in the morning, you know what, I think I'm going to accept Jesus today. I think I'm going to get saved today. None of us did it. Christ called Matthew to follow, and Matthew obeyed immediately. Salvation is both the the calling of Christ and a response of faith. Both of them happen, and they happen simultaneously. Christ called Matthew to follow, and then Matthew proved his faith by obeying and following it's all, we, we all did exactly the same thing. There, we did it differently, but the process was the same. Christ called, we obeyed. We responded. And not only did we respond, we responded using the faith that he gave us to respond with. The Bible says it's not, it's not of you. You didn't do it. Otherwise, you could boast about it. Well, Matthew goes on to do more than just respond, but he organizes a meal, verse 10. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. According to Luke's gospel, this is, this is Matthew's house where it is. It's Matthew's house. Matthew is, is organizing this meal. And so they're sharing this meal, and... and We sometimes, we read over these things and we just don't, we don't pause and really reflect upon this. Jesus, God in the flesh, sitting at this table and having a meal, sharing a meal with whom? His disciples. Okay, well, I expect that. And tax collectors and sinners. I, you if, you know, we we sometimes think of Jesus having a meal. We we kind of the image pops into our mind of, of is it Da Vinci's Last Supper? Is that the famous one? That's yeah, so what we see. We see you know we see Jesus at the center and this glow around him and everybody's eyes are like you know like oh, ah! can you imagine Jesus sitting at this table with tax collectors and sinners? It would be a raucous, wild, crazy. Time, You know, they're all cutting up. They're kidding each other. You know, who knows what kind of coarse jokes are going around. Probably not a lot of reverence, I'm guessing. Jesus did have an influence on this conversation. We know that because many of them followed him after this. Jesus, God in the flesh, eating with tax collectors and sinners. No good Jew (air quotes for those of you who are listening) would do what Jesus is doing right here. No good Jew would do that. It's so tax collectors and sinners. All of Matthew's friends. Who were they? Other tax collectors and sinners of whatever theme and variation they were. That's who he knew. So when he put on a meal, who did he invite to be a part of it? The people he knew. Tax collectors and sinners. They knew who they were. They knew what they were. If you had sat down in that group and said, hey, are you a sinner? they said, yeah, I'm a good one too. I don't mess around when I'm sinning, I'm doing it Good. They had no illusions about the fact that they were living a life that was contrary to God's law. They knew that. They knew they were sinners. Jesus' actions, as is often the case, offend others. They offend the religious people who see him eating with these sinners because, well, they wouldn't have done it. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Pharisees were a part of the religious establishment. They were one of the more prominent parts of the religious establishment. They they represented the the spiritual leadership of the nation of Israel. There's a significant portion of it. And they're asking Jesus' disciples about this because Jesus was doing something that they would <clears throat> they would never do. And let me just say real quickly: if you ever come to something in Scripture and you read something that Jesus said or did, and your response is "I would never do that," uh, is that a problem with what Jesus said or did, or is that a problem with your faith? And I would suggest it's a problem with your faith. See, the problem with the Pharisees is they didn't believe they were sinners. And Jesus has a word for them, verse 12. When Jesus heard that, he said to them, the Pharisees, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The Pharisees believed that they were experts in all things relating to God and his word that they were that they knew what God said they knew what God meant and then they lived this life around a whole collection of rules and regulations and commandments they're saying that if you do all these things then you are righteous before God they just referred to Jesus as teacher And he responds by telling them they have some things to learn. Specifically, this thing that he he quotes out of Hosea 6.6, that God desires mercy and not sacrifice see the pharisees believed that the way to be right with god was through the sacrificial system if you take a sacrifice an innocent animal and sacrifice it then then you are covered your sin is covered you are then righteous and they interpreted that more than just meaning your your sin is covered meaning meaning you you have mitigated god's judgment from you to actually imputing the righteousness into their very nature that if i do these rules and regulations i am no longer a sinner i am right. i am different than all of y'all if i do these things i am different i am right And we live in a time, and we, this has always been the case, there are some illnesses, even with all of the technology and medicine and science, there are still diseases and illnesses that are incurable. If you get a certain kinds of diseases... It, it will be with you for the rest of your life, may shorten your life as a result of that disease. Now, now doctors and medicine may be able to manage the symptoms, may be able to uh, slow the progress of some of these illnesses, but they can't make them go away. All humans were born with an incurable disease, and we call that disease. Sin. We are born with it. It's genetic. We got it from our parents. Who got it from their parents. Who got it from their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve. We're born with it. We will live with it our entire lives. There will never be a moment where you're free from sin. And when we die, we still have the disease of sin. As believers, we, through faith in Jesus Christ, we now have the, the best medicine there is for it. It doesn't take it away, but it can slow it down. It can, it can make it so that that disease doesn't show up in our lives. It can minimize the damage that it can cause to our lives and to the lives of, the, of those around us. The reality is that when we get saved, we no longer have to sin. We no longer have to allow that disease to control our lives. We now have the freedom and the liberty to not sin. Before Christ, we didn't have that. That, that disease owned us. Not anymore. It's still there. But, and if we will follow God, we can put it into remission. The Pharisees, when they look at Jesus, if he is who he says he is, if he is who they believe he th- they think he says he is, then in their minds, he ought to be associating with spiritual people, people that are righteous. The problem with spiritual people is they don't always see their spiritual needs the way that they should. And these ones certainly didn't see the spiritual things Jesus was offering to them. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, he says here. You know why? Because there aren't any. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says this, As it is written, the Apostle Paul writing, uh, you know, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is none righteous. How many do you think that means? Zero. Good job. Zero. There are none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have all, they have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. The Apostle Paul pulls this text out of the Old Testament where where they didn't have Christ back then. They didn't have the New Testament back then. He pulls that text into the New Testament and says, it's no different today, even after Christ died on the cross, than it was thousands of years ago. It's still true then. It was true then. It was true when Paul wrote it. Guess what? It's still true today. They were sick people who thought they were well. I'm one of those people that I go to the doctor if I have a limb falling off or, you know, if I know I can't, okay, I can't solve this, okay, I'll go to the doctor. I had pneumonia at Christmas, yay. If any of you are here for that, you know it was a miserable experience. Um, I knew I couldn't fix it. I've had pneumonia enough times. I know I can't fix this by myself. I must go to the doctor. These people were sick, and they, they thought they were well. I don't need your medicine. I don't need your remedy. I don't need your cure. I don't need you because I am okay. Or they were sick people who believed they had the cure either in themselves or in their religious practices. I don't need Jesus because I, you know, I do this or I do that. I'm a good person. I do more good than I do bad. That means I don't need Jesus. What Jesus offers only works for those who know they are sick. If someone doesn't know they're sick, I I can still remember not being Christian. It was a big chunk of my life. And I can remember Kelly trying to trying to save my wicked soul. Trying to tell me the truth. And I, I, I don't need that. I don't need any of that because I'm okay. I'm a good person. I was a good husband. I was a good father. I was a good provider. I did everything. I was dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's or whatever illustration you want to use. I was okay. I didn't need Jesus until I did Jesus came to heal the sick and he came to heal the greatest disease of all and that is the disease of sin but to be healed of it or at least to have his, have his healing you have, to, you have to acknowledge the fact that you are sick that you have the disease. And if you don't do that, then there's no hope. There's no hope of being delivered from it. And as long as we're in these bodies, we're going to need God's un ongoing healing from this sickness of sin. Now, there's no vaccine, there's no booster you can take, there's no religious process you can go through. There's there is nothing you can do that completely heals you of sin ever. And any church that tells you that, you know, once you get saved you're no longer a sinner, at the very best is deceive themselves or they're flat out misleading you. It's only after Jesus comes and takes us out of here and gives us, gets rid of these fleshly bodies, that we are completely healed of sin. I so long for that day. There's no more sin around me or in me for that matter. That's the point that John is making to Christians in 1 John 1:8. We understand when John was writing 1 John, he was writing to Christians and he wrote these words: if we say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. He was talking to people who were saved. If you say you have no sin, then the truth is not in you. You're lying to yourself. In case you're wondering, that's not a good thing to do. Once we are believers, we are still sinners. We are saved. We're We're redeemed. By the blood of Christ, we are forgiven for our sins. We're indwelt with, in with the Holy Spirit. We are bound for heaven, and nothing is going to change that. But the reality is there's still that sin nature is in us. And, 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 and the Bible says that there's a battle going on between the sin nature and the Spirit. And those two are, are, are in, at odds with one another. When? Always. And for all for the rest of your life that's going to be going on. And as we as we minister to, as we minister through the word and by the spirit to our own soul and heart, the spirit gets stronger and wins more and more of those conflicts, but that battle never ends. And we're told the Bible tells us to be on guard against those attacks and those that that spiritual reality. Be on guard. Because you know when those when you really start to get it, you get hit by it, is when you let your guard down, when you relax. And one of the glorious things about being a believer is while we, we do have the sin nature, we also have the Holy Spirit in us, and we no longer have to sin. Now it's a choice. You know, I, I, if if I'm ministering to somebody and they you know and, and they're, we're dealing with something, maybe they've made a mistake, or made a bad choice, or whatever. Or, you know, you know, it just you know, they'll blame somebody or something for it. I said, no, you can't do that. It was you. You chose that. Well, they made me mad. Nope. Nope. They may have created an environment around you where getting mad was your natural response, but then you chose the natural response. You chose the sin nature response rather than the spirit response. It's always a choice. But now we can make that choice. Before we couldn't make that choice. And we say hallelujah to that. So if, if we ever, and this is the this is one of the things we got to keep in mind, if we ever lose sight, and this is why I'm speaking, I know I'm speaking to, I'm I'm looking around the room, I'm seeing people have been saved longer than I've been alive. Well, maybe not, but they've been saved for a long time. <laughs> no, I've been a long for, I've been alive a long time now, but you know, yeah, you know, they've been saved for a long time, and and we sometimes we sometimes forget some of these things. We we. we we start to kind of get really comfortable in our salvation really comfortable in these truths about God and we should to some degree but when we do that we sometimes forget some of the other parts of it we forget hey i am still a sinner we don't like that word anybody here like to be referred to themselves as a sinner no we hate that idea but the reality is we are sinners But we're sinners saved by grace. When we forget that, when we forget that we are sinners, and we start appropriating Christ's righteousness as our righteousness, we'll start acting like the Pharisees. And we'll look it around and say, Oh, you know, everybody on that side of the room, not so sure about them. Those people sit in the back. You know, you know why they sit in the back, right? (laughs) Trying to get out of the splash zone. (laughs) We got to be so careful. Having the heart of a Pharisee. If you read the Gospels, the harshest, some of the harshest things that Jesus said to anyone while he was on the earth were to the scribes and the Pharisees. We never want to have the heart of a Pharisee. We never want to allow the spirit of that pharisaical attitude or spirit to rise up in us. To start start to, to, to evaluate ourselves and say, okay, well, I'm righteous and you're a sinner kind of a thing. No. When I look at anyone, I must always recognize I am a sinner. They are a sinner. We may be just on different paths, but we're all sinners. Another group approaches Jesus with a question about religion. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John... John, that'd be John the Baptist, came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to him, Can the friends of the brideg- bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into an old wineskin, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. There's a sense of disapproval from John's disciples as they come and they ask this question. They're looking at the disciples of Christ and saying, hey, these guys are, these guys are you know, they, have, they appear to have more freedom than we do. You know, we're fasting twice you know, I don't know how often they were doing it, but they're, you know, we're fasting and regularly fasting and they're not fasting at all. What's the deal there? You know, fasting was a part of the Jewish faith. Remember, everybody that Jesus talked to at this time was under the Old Covenant, under the covenant of Moses, under the law of Moses. Whether you know, they were practicing it regularly or not, but they were all under that law. That was the covenant that they were operating under, and so they, you know, they had these, all these rules and regulations that they were living under, and fasting was a part of that. It was part of the Jewish religion. It was originally a couple of times a year. And over time, the religious establishment added more. And more and more to the point where, you know, a good Jew (air quotes again for those who are listening, not watching), you know, was fasting twice a week. And and, and John's disciples may have been in that category. You know, John came from a priestly line, and so it's very likely that you know that you know that he he they, who who knows what he was doing, but he was communicating to his disciples this idea of fasting, and, and they're looking at Jesus' disciples, hey, they're not doing at all. What's the deal here? We've got to be so careful with that. We're looking at what other people are doing and and questioning their faith, questioning their hearts toward God because they're doing something different than we are. It doesn't happen too often to us in the Calvary chapels because, you know, we're probably more aligned. Well, anyways, I'm not going to get into that. You know, the disciples of Christ, they seem to be experiencing more freedom, which is kind of where we try to gravitate toward. The fasting that John's disciples were doing, for many of the Jews, had become a religious exercise with little spiritual weight to it or meaning. They had lost the true meaning of fasting, and it became a ritual. That's always a danger in in Christianity or faith in general, where we do something out of habit or tradition or, you know, we don't even know why we do it sometimes. It's just that's what the church does. And we lose sight of the meaning and understanding of what it's about. Even those things that we do on a regular basis. When we, You know, we do communion once a month. We, 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 we do the communion service once a month. And we, we try to be pretty diligent about explaining what it means. But we have to be careful because even, even that, even though we're explaining it, we can develop the habit of just like, oh yeah, okay it's time for communion again. And we don't allow our heart to really open up to what God's trying to say in that. God, when we're doing communion, you know where he wants us to be spiritually? At the foot of the cross. Literally, in our hearts and minds, envisioning ourselves at the foot of the cross, looking up into the eyes of our Savior, who's not on the cross, but the image there is important, that we recognize that's what communion's about that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And if we don't allow that to get in and and do something in our hearts, then we're falling into the same trap as the Pharisees and John's disciples here. Jesus uses three practical illustrations to make his point here, and we're not gonna gonna spend a lot of time on them, but the, the main point of all three of them is that the Messiah is here? You know, and, and and the first one, you know, the fasting and mourning were were connected. You say, hey, 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 the Messiah is here. It's not a time to fast. The, the, the main point is when Jesus arrived, he brought something new. And and when you bring something new, you can't add it to the old and make the old better. What he's saying is that the old is done. and In fact, the imagery here is the old is broken and needs to be replaced. And it is to be replaced by this new. They were living under the old covenant. He's saying it's time now to live under the new covenant. Now, that's, what we, that's where we live. We, we, for most of us, we have no clue about the Old Covenant. We, we might understand it intellectually because we've read the Bible, right? You've all read the Bible. Don't raise your hand. Just, I, I'm just going to believe that all of you have read the Bible. Because we keep telling you, right? How many times do we tell you to read your Bible? Every week, probably, at least. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Jesus is here. the the old is done the new is, is to take its place the main point of this message is that Jesus came to call sinners three quick things and we'll pray If Jesus called you, and, and let's be real, I'm guessing that most, if not all of you, have heard the call of God, have heard Christ's voice calling you into the light, calling you out of the darkness, calling you away from your sin nature and calling you toward his righteousness. If he has called you, then and you've responded, then rejoice. Say, praise God, I am saved. Right? I mean, shouldn't we rejoice in that? If you understand what it means, the, the, that's the only possible response. And I think it's important for us to spend some time occasionally and talk about that. You know, what have I been saved from? Oh, I've been saved from sin. Oh, great. How about saved from eternal judgment? That's a, probably a pretty good one. How about being saved from the consequences of my sin for the rest of my life? That's a good one as well. And if you are saved, you are a sinner saved by grace. But you're still a sinner. And you need Jesus to to cleanse you, to to heal you on a daily basis. Now, I'm not talking about you need to get saved again because you only need to do that once. But we go through this world, we go through this life, and sin touches us. We can't avoid it. We pick up stuff. You know, Jesus washing the feet of the disciples is a a beautiful image of that. When Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, he said to them, "You, you are clean already. But I need to wash your feet. Meaning the idea is that they 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 they've already been cleansed, the idea of being saved, but they still have to get that stuff off their feet they picked up as they walk through the world. Same thing is true for us. As we walk through this world, we need a regular cleansing. That's so where 1 John 1 9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us for our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How often do we have to do that? <laughs> all the time. If you're living, you're going to have to do that all the time. You know, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only, only one that's messed up. But every now and then, weird thoughts pop into my mind. Thoughts that I absolutely cringe when they pop into my mind. I think, How, where did that come from? Yeah, one of the things that God delivered me from almost immediately after I got saved was profanity. Almost, I was in in the Navy, you know? And so profanity was, well, it's kind of like how the world is today. The world is today the way that I was 30 some odd years ago. In the Navy, we use profanity the way they use it commonly today in public. It just blows me away how freely people use profanity today. I used to be that guy, never around women or children, interestingly, but when I was in the Navy and doing the Navy things, poof, yeah, it was easy. I got saved and it went away. Not only did it go away, the words just weren't even in my, they they just disappeared from my vocabulary. But now, every now and then, one of those words just pops into my mind. I'm thinking something and and profanity is, is right in the middle of it, I'm thinking, what? Where did that come from? I haven't thought that word in forever. And you know what I have to do with that? I got to get rid of it. I can't leave it there. I confess it. God, that is wicked. And you know what? I'm not, I'm not kind to Rick in those moments, I'm not gentle with Rick in those moments. That is a wicked, evil thought. And God, please forgive me for it. And you know what he does? He forgives me and then cleanses me. And you know what that means for me? I move forward in absolute freedom. I don't drag that thing around with me. Matter of fact, I don't even think about it again. I don't wonder, well, why? Oh, you know, what, did I, what did I do to that? No, I don't mess with it. I, forgive. I, I confess it, he forgives it, I, I move on from it. And that's what he wants us to do. Third, finally, and maybe the most important for this message Jesus came to save every sinner you encounter in life. Everyone. How many of you will encounter a sinner today? Does he want to save them? Yep question we need to ask, the thing that we need to do in our hearts is would God have me to do something like what Jesus did with the tax collectors and sinners? Would he have me sit down and share a meal with them? Or whatever the equivalent is in your life. Would you share some part of your life with a sinner? Someone that you look at them and you say, you know what? That person is really messed up. I'm not even sure God wants to save them. That's not your place. What would God have you to do? Is there anyone that God doesn't want to save? The answer is no. And if God puts one of those people into your life, he puts them into your circle, he puts them into your path, you have to ask yourself, God, what are you calling me to with this person? Now, it doesn't mean you're going to, you know... I don't know. You've got, you got to let the Holy Spirit lead you. I can't, I can't tell you. But if that person comes before you, and you can, and, and, and many of you, I'm guessing, can imagine some illustration or some type of a person like that. That's the one that I would really have a real problem with. I look at that person, and that person is a tax collector. That person is a sinner. That person is, you know, it, it's pretty, they're pretty messed up. I'm not even sure I want to be in the same county with that person, let alone sit at a table with them. What if God put you in that place? Shouldn't you be willing to do what Jesus would do in that environment? Shouldn't you be willing to to love them and to to show some little bit of light into their lives? I I think the answer is yes. Now again, please don't take this as conviction. Actually, take it as conviction. Don't take it as condemnation. We have to open our hearts wide, like Jesus would do it. Would Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? Yes. Would he eat with, with gay people and transgender and leftists and pick something that we may not approve of? You know, some liberal or, you know, Democrat or, I don't know, pick something. Bad driver. Bad driver. You know, we'll be nice to a bad driver. Whatever it might be, whatever this person is, if that person, if if you think about them and it creates a negative emotion, mm, that's a question mark in your heart. It should be a question mark in your heart. Is my heart right to that person? Is my heart right to that bad driver? Shouldn't I be more gracious? Shouldn't I have the love of Jesus Christ for them? I don't know why they're a bad driver. Gosh, I could go on such a tangent right now. Stay on lines. I have a line right down the middle of the room right here. It helps me remind. Stay on track. Stay on track, Rick. <laughs> Driver, stay on track. No, sorry. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, Jesus came to save sinners. How do you know that? Because he saved you and he wants to save the rest of them too and you know how he does it he's not walking around calling Matthews out of their tax collection booths he's not he's not sitting at tables with tax collectors and sinners you know what he did he created a church he created a body of people who have his spirit within them and he says to them go and do what I have done do it in my name, do it according to my word, and do it according to the power of the Holy Spirit that they might know mercy and find grace. That's why we're here. That's why we exist, so that we can show mercy to those sinners out there that, that they're just one step away from being like we are today. All they have to do is turn. Turn. And they're where we are. When we find those sinners in our lives, we need to look at them with the love and compassion of Christ. And if God gives us the opportunity, we need to tell them what Jesus did for us. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, we come thanking you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you do save sinners. (laughs) We, We praise you for that, God, because without that, we would all be lost. And Lord, as we're as we're talking about this, this reality of what it of being saved and, and making that transition from being a sinner to a, a sinner saved by grace, Lord, we need to recognize that maybe somebody here, maybe somebody watching online, maybe somebody who will watch or listen to this later on, Lord, maybe they aren't saved. Maybe they are they are they they are like these religious Jews who who have the, the mechanics of religion, who have the the the, the stuff of religion, but don't have real faith. Your word tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, you cannot be saved. It was Christ's call and Matthew's faith that resulted in salvation. And so I pray, God, if someone's here, I pray, Lord, that you would give them the faith right this very moment to believe that Christ, you died for their sins. That unless they turn from their sins, unless they repent of their sins, unless they receive your call, they accept your call, they respond to your call, then they will be lost. And lost means an eternity separated from God. In a in a in a eternal judgment that is too horrible to even want to talk about but your grace your mercy God is beautiful and amazing and if we will just respond all of our past is cleansed all of our mistakes all of our wrong choices all of our sins they're forgiven every last one of them and then we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit to give us the, the ability to live a life that is good and right that glorifies you God and so there's anyone here who has not responded to your call I pray Lord God give them the faith right this very moment and help them to hear your voice the small still voice of God calling them out of the darkness and into the light and if you will believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he rose again ascended to heaven and will someday come back to get you then you are saved And so I pray, Lord, do that work in their hearts right this very moment. And well for the rest of us, Lord, as we prepare to go out from this place, we go out sinners saved by grace. And as we go out, we will encounter sinners. Help us to have your grace, your love for them. That as we see them, we don't see them as sinners. We see them as as divine creations of God for the purpose of glorifying you. And that, Lord, that we would see them with the same love that you have for them. To see them, to to prepare our hearts to give them the same compassion that you would give them. And should, Lord, you give us the opportunity that we will share the reality of who you are and what you've done in our lives to them. We praise you, Lord, for all that you are and all that you do. And if there's anyone struggling with something today, I pray, Lord, that you would give them what they need whether it's answers or peace or hope or strength or whatever it might be, Lord God, you are, you are a good Father and you give good gifts, and we pray, I pray right this moment, that you would bestow those, whatever they need right now upon them. We praise you, Lord, for all that you are, and we thank you, Lord God, that you love us so much that you would send your Son to step down out of heaven to make a way to, for us to be with you for all of eternity. We praise you, we love you, and we give the rest of this day to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. If we can pray with you, please come let us pray with you. Otherwise, have a radical week in Jesus. Amen? Thank you for joining us as we learn more about our Savior King and his kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. It is our hope that these messages will help you grow in your faith if you have any questions or there is anything we can do to help you with that, please do not hesitate to connect with us. Go to calvaryfv.com connect to find all the ways that you can connect with us. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. One of the ways we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. Send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word PRAY to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give. Or text the word GIVE to 951 419 until next time go be radical with Jesus